If you're a nurse or midwife and you're feeling stressed, burned out, things are just really getting on top of you, where do you turn to for support? Are there people within your organisation that you can turn to? Typically in the past, where have people been able to get support? Well, historically, there hasn't been much formalised support within both nursing and midwifery. But luckily, in recent years, there has been a rollout of the professional nurse advocacy and professional midwifery advocacy programmes. And this is an exciting development within the professions, finally acknowledging the need for conversations that focus on the emotional human needs of you guys, the people who are dealing with these really challenging situations. Today's episode is all about these two programmes. I talked to Martin Hogan, who is the lead PNA for Central London Community Healthcare NHS Trust. Martin is an absolute pioneer of the PNA programme. He is 100% behind it and has demonstrated its effectiveness. And he is extremely passionate about supporting nurses and developing this programme so the profession at large, both nursing and midwifery, have a more robust support structure built within them for the long term so people can enjoy their roles, can progress in their careers and ultimately provide safe and effective patient care. So this is a fantastic conversation with Martin. Martin is a lovely guy. He's really inspiring. He clearly loves what he does and he's the kind of person who is in a position of leadership who really speaks from the heart and is really out there to make a positive change because of how much he believes in what he's doing so it it really does rub off on you when you're speaking to Martin. So I invite you to continue listening to find out more about the PNA program just a quick bit of housekeeping from me if you haven't heard this podcast before my name is Nathan Illman I'm founder of Nurse Wellbeing Mission and you can follow me on other social media channels as well as this podcast on your podcatchers so you can find me on instagram it's at underscore nurse wellbeing mission you can join my free facebook group if you just type in nurse and midwife wellbeing mission you can come along there and you can get a bunch of well-being tips and resources videos things that i make on there which i get frequent feedback that it's helping people so i really recommend you come there there's also linkedin you can find me just nathan illman it's i-l-l-m-a-m so without further ado i bring you this conversation about professional nurse advocacy with martin hogan well, let's get right into it martin thank you so much for joining me on nurse Wellbeing mission podcast Thank you for having me. Yeah, no worries. So let's dig in. Why don't you start by telling us about your role, what you're currently doing now, and a little bit of context as to yeah, who you are. Yeah, so I'm Martin Hogan, and I'm a lead professional nurse advocate at Central London Community Healthcare. Um, I'm a general nurse by background, and I've come into this role after qualifying as a professional nurse advocate, or PNA, as I'll use from here on out, because it's quite a mouthful to say. What I'm trying to achieve now in my organisation is to implement the role of the PNA. Uh, so this is a nurse who's been trained at master's level like me to deliver all things like mental health first aid, restorative supervision, career conversations, and quality improvement. So my 
role is strategic, but where I'm a man of many hats. So I'm a mentor, a practice assessor, a strategist, and trying to um, get protected time for our PNAs to be able to go off and support the workforce through restorative supervision and the, all the other PNA activities. Great. And can you talk a little bit more about what is restorative supervision? Yeah, so it's a psychologically, we've got lots of supervision, which I think always confuses people. Um, so we have clinical supervision for our allied health professionals, that's really embedded there. But in nursing, it's kind of hit and miss. I, I never had supervision for the probably 20 years of my career. Mm -hmm. And I was in roles like being a Millen specialist nurse, where I really could have had some form of supervision, I would have lapped it up. So restorative supervision is the cousin of clinical supervision. It's not taking away from, it's adding into, and it's about you the person, the holistic person. You don't change who you are as a person the moment you put your uniform on. You still have your stresses and anxieties from home or from work. So it's a psychologically safe space, a confidential space where you can talk about how you really are and offload. And I'm not a psychotherapist, I'm a PNA. So I see myself as, as an emotional detective. I'm here to explore all things about you, your coping strategies, and what I can do to help. Often it's just having a shoulder to cry on or a psychotherapist psychologically safe space to really get to the crux of the issue and why you're having work-related stress and what I could maybe do to support you through action planning at the end of supervision. It's incredible that the PNA programme actually exists and I think as I've shared with you before it was one of my kind of reflections about from an outsider mm -hmm. looking in at nursing was how shocked I was that there was no regular what, what you guys call restorative yeah. supervision in the psychology world it's kind of just supervision clinical supervision which includes that as well yeah so it's fantastic that things have moved on and there has been a well there is a maybe perhaps slow culture change <laughs> but we'll get we'll get into that but, um, i'm really curious to know so you mentioned that for 20 years you didn't get anything no so just tell us a little bit about any kind of support emotional support that was provided to you and what you might have seen other colleagues or friends getting if at all yeah so I had a bit of a horrible time when I was newly qualified maybe it's because I'm emotionally intelligent I kind of latch on to people a little bit like a Klingon mm. if I think they're a really good mentor or leader or there's something about them that I think oh that person could really help me in my career so I then kept borrowing mentors wherever job whatever job I had I would seek out someone that you know I liked their leadership style or they seem supportive and we'd just have informal chats or you know we'd be in a whatsapp group or we'd go for a walk on our lunch break so you'd have that informal corridor conversations um as forms of support and then you'd have like a regular meeting with your manager but it was very much like have you met your kpis have you done your mandatory training what's mm -hmm. happened here so i guess it's the informal support and what nurses are great at is coming together as like an, an army or a family like we really you i felt really looked after by the areas I worked most of the time not all the time but most of the time um, so I'd say it was probably the informality the corridor conversations that I got support from and it sounds like you really took the initiative to seek that support as well whereas I imagine a lot of other people didn't necessarily or wouldn't have necessarily initiated that and sought out as perhaps as much informal support as, as you did. Yeah. Something I'm really curious to know then from your perspective is why did it take until the past few years to establish a more formalised system of support within nursing for the emotional nature of the role? 
Yeah, that's a really great question. I remember sort of maybe 10-ish years ago, clinical supervision was brought in to different areas, different specialities. And in community and district nursing, they ran with it, they had it, it was embedded. But in intensive care where I was at the time, there was no time, it was absolutely impossible, short staffing, no resources. So it kind of just died to death, really. And I think it did a lot in the acute hospitals, mainly down to time, lack of buy-in from people, lack of resources and lack of staff I think that sort of people like I'm too busy to get support or I'm too busy for change you can just cope with what's in your line of sight yeah yeah <laughs> it's, it's that thing isn't it it's yeah in the short term it feels like just doing more is, is yeah. going to help and then uh, yeah unfortunately that doesn't really solve things in the long term I know. yeah so why is the PNA program different in your opinion well, I'm not going to sound biased, although I am, I guess, because I'm a PNA. But for me, it just changed my career and it changed the way I thought and changed how I stood, if that makes sense. Like, mm -hmm. I really, I started on the course not really knowing anything about quality improvement or supervision or career conversations and really leadership. And so I gained so much from even just undertaking the course and it's changed my practice. I'm a safer practitioner because I have better boundaries. I know how to look after myself. Therefore, I'm safer for my patients. Um, and I think it's I feel like I'm a walking EpiPen for health and well-being. And I kind of see that's the role of the PNA. You know, we're, we're your mirrors to help support you through challenging times and, and get you better and recover you. So I, I literally think it's the best thing I've ever done. And the other PNAs that I know or have spoken to, they've all feel the same like it's changed us and it's given us something that we probably knew a little bit about but it's elevated that it enables you to be really in touch with your own human experience as well yeah. I guess it gives you permission to actually acknowledge your own feelings it, it really in a formalized way it gives you permission to really connect with your colleagues to actually ask uh, those questions that are going to build connection and vulnerability yeah I love that. Give That is exactly how I feel, Nathan. It's given me permission to do all of mm. these things. Yeah, that's a really good synopsis of how I felt. So something I'd really like to know is you mentioned, you said, oh, we're not, I'm not a psychotherapist. Yeah. And you've talked about all these, the, the ways in which you provide that psychologically safe space. I imagine there must be some people out there who they are a PNA or they want to be a PNA and they are kind of thinking about this idea of boundaries and mm -hmm. You know, this is great being in this role, but, you know, what do I do if someone shares this thing? Yeah, and there's lots of questions around that kind of thing. So I'm curious to know, how do you manage that and what advice would you give to other people? Yeah, great question. So within, and I felt those things when I qualified and I was working in mental health and I thought, oh no, I hope no one brings anything too difficult because I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. But actually what I remember is that I am a nurse with transferable skills and I always know what to do in any situation. I've worked in A&E, you know, on Friday night in Brighton, there were lots of people in mental health crises. And although I wasn't a mental health nurse, I knew that through compassionate communication and care, I could support people through any Thing. And whilst we had the luxury of being in A&E, you had, you know, psych liaison team down the corridor, sometimes you don't have that as a PNA. So what I'm trying to do in my role is have these things called refer on systems. So we have our monthly like community of practice, which is a, just a nice get together where we talk about how we are, matters arising. But then we have psychologists in our organisation and within our, around our organisations, we've also got lots of different options for psychotherapy and counselling. So we could refer people 
people on if needed it. And I'm always available for any of our PAs if they ever need to talk to me about something or they've had a difficult conversation, they don't know what to do. So there's that sort of governance process to safeguard and mitigate any risk. It sounds like it's a nice combination of you trusting in yourself and your own abilities. And I guess coming back to that, the basics of connection, right? Is that, yeah. you know, you train as a nurse and yes, of course, you know, these other technical skills. But the main thing is, you know, you actually work with human beings and yeah. you, know, if you just fall back on that compassion. The thing is going to be OK. And as well as having these other systems of support, which I'm extremely sensible and necessary <laughs> that help protect you and, and will help protect other people when they feel kind of a bit out of their depth. And they, yeah. To help someone move on somewhere else that's a bit more specialist. Yeah, absolutely. And it's much needed as well. I think it just reduces the anxiety from PAs. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, because I mean, I think I shared this when I um, came on the call with you guys. You know how when I first trained as a, as a clinical psychologist, the first time you're learning to do therapy, you know, even though you kind of you sort of know that you've got good people skills, you've got emotional intelligence, yeah. suddenly the responsibility of being in a session, and I, I think it's part of it's that is putting pressure on ourselves. Yeah. Putting pressure. Oh my goodness, I, I've got to fix everything. Uh, and I think when you get into that kind of mindset, that's when you start to worry and you start to not be present with the person. Mm-hmm. And actually, often empathic listening is really all someone needs to begin with to feel heard, understood, to feel safe. And once you do those basics, you can make transformation with someone. Yeah. In that, you know, at least calm someone and get them in a state in which you can then start to problem solve, perhaps. Which exactly. Which is greater. Yeah, exactly. All right. So I'd love to know a little bit more about, so the structure of the sessions, um, I know you've mentioned there's these different aspects of things, but for you, when you're running a PNA session, do you have like, you know, a kind of agenda of how you run them or are they quite flexible? Just talk me through what it yeah. kind of looks like. Absolutely. So I am not very formal person, but in my role, I've become very formal. I have the ability to be very creative. So if you want to have a formal restorative supervision session, we've got referral form on a QR code and you can pick what PNA activity you want to have before you come to the session. And we might have sort of 45 minutes of delivering the supervision where the first 10 are boundary setting and contracting. And then it's lovely because then it's over to you to talk about how you are, how you really are. And yeah. I'm might ask some explorative questions but I'm not doing all the talking which was a very hard skill for me to learn not to do as a nurse as a fixer (laughs) in the beginning but I've become quite a master with silence and pausing and then it's a kind of at the end where we have this action sort of learning set or action planning where even if you're coming to talk to me about something personal that isn't related to work I will give you or we will collaborate on what actions you can take in order to improve or to recover or to heal whatever it is that you need to do. And so that's the formal uh, side of it, whereas the informal, because I work in a massive organisation, it's geographically huge, like Hertfordshire, everywhere in London. I invented like informal models of practice. So I'm quite a child and I have quite playful imagination. (laughs) So we've got the walkie-talkie model of community P&A activity, which is where I just walk a district nurse their next visit for 20 minutes. And we just sense check and do a wellbeing check of how they are, how they really are they go off to see the patient I go off into some coffee shop and get my laptop out and then I meet them for the walk back and it's just to give them because people have said to me I don't have time Martin like I'd love to do all this stuff but I don't have time so I've kind of invented time that they already have so the walk to their next patient they have to do anyway they're not 
doing any clinical work. So it's in completely informal and trying to adapt to the needs of the workforce. I think that's absolutely incredible. And I think, you know, we need to see more of that within mental health in general. I know there are some quite innovative ways. And of course, like digital mental health interventions have obviously proliferated in the past 20, 30 years. But yeah, also meeting people where they're at and what their preferences are as well. So some people prefer to talk on the phone. Some people prefer to have texting or voice notes, that kind of thing. It sounds like you've really looked at the broad needs of different groups of people and tried to, like you said, be playful. (laughs) I love that. I love (laughs) playful, childlike minds. Amazing. (laughs) And what kind of feedback have you had? We'll we'll, we'll talk about some of the more objective stuff around your evaluation, other evaluations of the PNA programme, but but what's the kind of feedback that you've been getting subjectively from people? Yeah, so when in when I was in mental health five months ago, I was running our newly qualified uh, course, which was called Perceptorship. And at the end of the program, people would say to me, and it made me really emotional that I'd been their rock, or they would have just left if it hadn't been for me. They didn't know how to challenge, do all these situations, and now they're going to become the next leaders of tomorrow. And I thought, oh gosh, did I do this because I'm a P- Oh, I did this because I've trained as a PNA and now I can, therefore I do. So the feedback has just been overwhelmingly positive to the point where I've actually sent all my data on our post-evaluation form to our R&D team just to make sure that I'm not like fiddling the books or like making it up. Like I want, I want people to actually believe that these are the sometimes immeasurable feedback that we're getting from people. You're really making a difference. Yeah, I mean, that, that's incredible. And I think, like you say, it's important to feed that back to other people as well, isn't it? To, yeah. Yeah, to demonstrate to people who are perhaps sat in an office somewhere who aren't seeing yes, seeing the delivery of yeah a programme which has been funded. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the rollout of the PNA programme and where it's at and how it's being evaluated? Yeah, so the rollout, so NHS England have kind of suggested that each organisation has a PNA lead, for example, who can do all the strategy stuff and support each individual organisation because we're all different. So we'll all need very different things. So we're trying to standardise that all NHS organisations will have one PNA to support 20 nurses. But each, you've got massive organisations with massive number of staff. So each uh, trust, each PNA lead has a sort of creative licence to look at what's actually needed within that organisation. Um, for our trust for example we've got loads of people waiting to start their course which would be fantastic because we'll have lots of PNAs and um, but at the minute we don't have protected time so I'm using all of our measures for success to then sort of brag to our executives say well look actually if we got protected time we could be improving retention on a much bigger scale uh, reducing sickness absence so I think lots of organisations are very far ahead. They've got protected time. They're doing a, a wonderful work, but everyone's sort of at a different step in their journey, which is fine. And that's completely fine and acceptable. And I know that NHS England are doing a map or have done recently a massive piece of research to evaluate the impact on what PNAs are doing to support the workforce. So there was a big research piece published by Dr. Liz Lees Doig, and that can be found on NHS Futures. And it's kind of, it's really, you know, everything that we know to be true, that by having that psychologically safe space you're improving people's mental health and ability to cope and therefore reducing their sickness absence amazing and what do you see as the main challenges to 
mass rollout of the PNA program? So I, it's really interesting because I was, I was a little bit like, you know, a giddy school child coming into this role thinking this will be easy. This is all I've got to focus on. But I've been, I've met with quite a bit of resistance and actually it's resistance from people that I found quite surprising, which is actually the nursing workforce. Mm. And I thought, no, you can't be resistant because I'm trying to do this for you to help you. Mm-hmm. Now it's not because they find me really annoying. It's because they just they don't they're not in the space where they feel that they would benefit from supervision or they don't trust me yet because I'm new or they don't really see the benefit of why we would do quality improvement or or having career conversations. And someone very frankly told me the other day, oh, I thought you were a spy, Martin, like I thought the director sent you in to spy on us. And I went, no, she, she sent me in because she thought I could help. So I think it, it's a big piece around trust and understanding what this is. It's a bit new to different areas of nursing as well. Um, we don't really like new things as nurses. I've come to, we say we love change, but we don't really like change because it feels like something else. In an already busy environment with a lack of resources to then, I suppose change occupies headspace to think about a new thing, to learn a new skill, yeah. make space for something when you're yeah. the grind of the day-to-day job. Is exactly. Intense and stressful. Yeah. I can really understand that. I think it's, it, do, it does. And yeah, there, there is truth to that, isn't there? Like change mm, yeah. does require effort, but I guess it's the, on the other side of the effort is the growth and the potential improvement in well-being or whatever it is yeah. in performance for the team or the, the service. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's really interesting when the the people that were saying this really useful intelligence to me, um, they said, oh, Martin, I do actually feel burnt out. And I said, I know, because you're not getting what I'm trying to sell to you. I get that you get you're burnt out. That's why I'm here. But I, you know, and I just think back to days that I have been burnt out when anyone said to me, oh, there's something new that might help. I was like, no, no, no. (laughs) I'll go back to my own coping strategies, which are rubbish, but this is what I know. And this is where I feel comfortable. So I'm interested because it sounds like you, you've been talking to people who are in positions of leadership around this. Have you noticed resistance from particular types of people? So, for example, people who might be, I don't know, perhaps a bit older, almost more senior compared to younger, perhaps new graduates. Um, yeah. What does that look like? Yeah, that is such a good question because it's so true. So people who, the older sort of nurses who've been around a bit longer in the organisation have said to me, oh, we've done something like this before. We had that rollout of clinical supervision. It didn't work. So this isn't going to work either. And I was like, well, just give it a go. We'll see. But the younger nurses, the TikTok generation, I call them, they all say to me, oh, no, I get this. I've seen it on TikTok. I've seen it on something. Like, I understand what it is. And actually, can I have some? So I think there's a such a need and an acceptance from the, the younger generation of like, actually, I need support and I will ask for it. Whereas my generation, it was kind of forbidden to ask for help. You just had to get on with it. So you, you then inherit the other generations just toughen up and that's not healthy and that's not helping retention. No, not at all. So I guess, I mean, that is quite a big obstacle or challenge. Well, I don't really like the word obstacles because we don't want to position people as obstacles, but <laughs> I guess a collective mindset or belief system can be an obstacle to change. Yeah. So what are your thoughts around navigating that then? So you've got this great program, you're starting to build some momentum and, and get some data. What needs to happen within organisations? Is it just constant ongoing discussions? Is it presenting that data? I mean, what, what do you think about changing the minds of people who are in more senior positions of leadership who are perhaps of an older generation with that type of mindset? 
I think it's sort of being tactical of thinking, well, actually, that's useful intelligence. So why is that person being resistant? So now I'm, you know, expert in quality improvement and in quality improvement, you have to ask yourself why three times to get right. to the crux of the issue. So now I kind of utilize that to do supervision or to get by and I'm like, but why do you not see the point? And why is that? Oh, why are you burnt out? And that's kind of working slowly, but I kind of need to clone me a bit more. So we've got lots of people who are graduating as PNAs, who I've been their teacher, I've been their practice assessor, and now they're doing the work for me. So it's growing, it's slowly coming. Um, and I think to get sort of senior buy-in, it's definitely using that data, the pre and post evaluation to, and looking at that kind of research uh, to demonstrate the worth. And then going to your finance team and, and trying to look at, you know, is what I'm doing improving the money of each division or each organization by meaning that they're not having lots of people going off sick so therefore they're not having to use agency so that's a big piece of work that I'm slowly working on but I think we're getting there and I think slow and steady is much better than astronomical rise because I think with astronomical rises they won't be sustainable and what I want this to be is sustainable for our all of our organizations yeah so that's something I'm curious about as well is um have there been influences from nursing in other countries that have been informing the PA program or the or the way you think about providing restorative supervision and this kind of this nice mix of yeah kind of coaching and supporting your staff? I think it's the other way around actually because like Canada and America and Australia, they're lapping up the PNA program. So England and NHS England are kind of leading, you know, internationally and globally with stuff like this, because actually international nursing, we don't have supervision. And this is kind of a new concept to a lot of countries. So yeah, it's kind of the opposite. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, and I know. You, and you've got a very important role. So it's, it's yeah, the influence you're having is is massive, isn't it? Thank you. It feels like that. But again, it's been slow and steady, which I, I'm happy with now. Yeah. And it's culture change, isn't it? Like we've yeah. just been talking about and culture change doesn't happen. Well, I mean, it's different on a more local level within an organization, because if, yeah. you, if you just suddenly got rid of the CEO of an organization, brought someone in and you probably could relatively quickly change culture. But we're talking about a profession, aren't we? It's, mm -hmm. it's so, you know, yeah. <laughs> hundreds of thousands of people working yeah. in multiple different organizations absolutely um so tell us how people can become a pna what do they need to do if they're interested in this program so you can have a look at nhs england future page so that you can just google pnas nhs futures and there's like a descriptor so essentially you have to have evidence of studying at degree level level six and have some understanding of how you're going to do pna activity in your current role each organization will have someone in a role uh, which will have an aspect of being a lead pna or you might have someone like me who's in a dedicated lead so you get in touch with them and we i for example have an eligibility criteria so we're looking for people in the right role, um, understand uh, what's expected of them. So they have to do like e-online learning, then get their manager's approval as well. Because if the manager says no, then that's going to be really difficult to release them to get them on the course. And then I just have informal chats with anyone, aspirant PNAs. I think most of the leads or organisations will have the same as well. That's fantastic. Before we finish, is there any other final information you think is relevant for people if they want to find out more about this or perhaps where to find you if they're interested in, in following you and the programme? 
Yeah, absolutely. So I wasn't very good at social media two years ago. Then I started on this PA journey and I've got this massive following on Twitter. So you can follow me on Twitter, which is at advocacy underscore forum. And that's kind of just an informal space of all things PA and uh, NHS England's uh, PA page as well, which you can Google. Amazing. Well, thanks so much, Martin. It really is just such a pleasure talking to you. And like I said, it, you know, what you're doing with the PNA program, it aligns so much with what I like to do as yeah. well with Nurse Wellbeing Mission. And, and I'm just so pleased people like you exist finally Aww. leading change with providing that really crucial support to nurses within nursing as well. I think it's, you know, there needs to be a combination, doesn't there, of within and outside of, of a profession. Exactly. So. Thank you. And thanks for having me. This has been fantastic. Before you go, I just want to kindly ask you for one more minute of your time. Firstly, how good was that conversation with Martin? It was so wonderful listening to his passion, his enthusiasm, and hearing about the success of the PNA program. If you enjoyed this episode, I really recommend you subscribe to the podcast right now so you get access to future episodes straight away when I publish them. The other thing I want to quickly tell you about is a little bit about me and Nurse Wellbeing Mission and what I offer. So one of the things that I provide as part of Nurse Wellbeing Mission is training around self-compassion, helping nurses and midwives develop core skills related to taking care of themselves. And in a climate in which there are scant resources and more and more pressures, this kind of work is so important. Now, Martin and I talked today about the role of the PNA and the PMA. And as far as I'm concerned, for people who are supporting the emotional needs of other people, self-compassion work is even more essential because when we're the ones containing other people, we need some skills around self-care to talk to ourselves kindly and to manage our own emotions effectively. So I provide self-compassion training for organisations and indeed for individuals. So if you think that would be of use and helpful for you or your staff, then please get in touch with me. You can find me on my website at nursewellbeingmission.com or find me on LinkedIn. As I said at the beginning, it's Nathan Illman, I-L-L-M-A-N. And just shoot me a DM. I would love to hear from you and start a conversation. So everyone, until the next episode, I'll see you in a couple of weeks. Take care for now. Bye-bye.